Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, friends or strangers. It's been a little while since I posted an episode, which was not planned, but things have been so insane with the holidays and lots of crazy stuff going on in my life. I sincerely have not had the time to sit down and record an intro. I've got several episodes that have been recorded, but haven't been able to kind of sit down and focus and release them, but we should be back now, hopefully, on schedule. I think I mentioned at the beginning, my plan was initially only to release an episode every other week. I think I was doing that because one, I didn't think I'd be able to handle the workload of releasing one a week, but also because I was afraid I wouldn't be finding people to interview or that it would be challenging to get in touch with people. And that has not been the case at all, which has been really refreshing that there are so many people, but then that also means I want to release the episodes, (laughs) which adds the extra work. Um, but hopefully we should be back in the swing of things. I would like to stick to generally a weekly release schedule, but hopefully you guys don't mind if I'm slightly imperfect about that. So, um, yeah, things have been busy, the holidays. Um, if you want to know more about how I spent the holidays and my feelings about the holidays. I um, release solo episodes on my Patreon page, which you can get to by going to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second. Um, I spent the holidays alone this year, had a lot of thoughts about that that I shared on the most recent solo episode. So head over there if you want to learn about it. Um, after Christmas, I went out to Joshua Tree or Yucca Valley with some friends, which was just fucking amazing to get away. It's one of those places that just always feels like magic. You know, I think there, when you're tuned in, there are certain places that you go to in the world that may look quaint or unassuming at first, but you just feel the energy of a place and, going out to Yucca Valley is definitely one of those places. So I was really happy to go out there for New Year's, came back, was home for a day, and then left basically the following day for Tucson, Arizona. My grandparents who have the cabin in Colorado that I talk about all the time live in Tucson in the wintertime. 
my dad was going out there and I decided to take a relatively last minute unplanned trip out there to discuss the upcoming move to Colorado to the cabin, which was another story that I told on one of my solo episodes on Patreon. Anyway, long story short, I'm no longer moving to Colorado. (laughs) Surprise! Um, It's funny because on this last episode that I recorded on Patreon, I talked all about having a plan and changing a plan and my thoughts around all of that. And at the time, I still thought I was moving to Colorado. I talked a bit about a plan that I'd had to go to grad school that shifted a bit. Um, And now everything seems to have shifted. So it's interesting because I completely have PTSD about making changes to my perceived plan. In the past, in especially my 20s, I made a lot of decisions that neglected and um, sacrificed my own needs and my own desires for other people. And so I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. I wanted to, you know, I had a whole list of things that I thought I could do. And I met someone and I decided to get married and live and move to like suburban San Diego and have a regular life. And that was devastating. I was actually just talking about this in therapy yesterday about how There've been a lot of metaphorical deaths in my life, but I think the death of my 20s was certainly one of the most traumatic and the most recent obviously and a death that really haunts me. And I'm very I try at this point in my life to be very conscious around what types of changes I'm making to my life, ensuring that I'm no longer making changes that take me off of a path that I want to be on or prioritize someone else's path or someone else's needs over my own. Um, And it just, it got me thinking about how there are, and this is something I've been thinking about in general, how there are always two sides of every coin, right? And to examine this stuff within ourself requires diligence. So what do I mean by that? So I had this plan to move to Colorado. It was kind of coinciding with a plan. I had to go to grad school. I had this idea, this project that I wanted to accomplish that I'm actually going to talk about for the first time on this show right now. Um, But I had this plan of something I wanted to do and figured that I needed to be relatively autonomous in my accomplishing of this goal. And one of the ways that I thought I would be able to accomplish that was by going to grad school and getting a degree so that I had some sort of credential and people would listen to me and take me seriously and maybe give me money and help me fund this project. So the moving to the cabin in Colorado, which again, if you want to hear more about that, you can head over to Patreon and listen to the episode that I posted. This was sometime back in early December. Um, you know, I just had this kind of plan of moving out to the middle of nowhere by myself, being a little isolated and studying and writing and the cabin and grad school went hand in hand. And I think once grad school was off the table, the cabin didn't make a ton of sense anymore. Um, but 
there are always two ways we can swing things. And I really wanted to be conscious around why I was deciding not to go live at the cabin anymore. Was this because people and circumstances have come into my life and I wanted more to move toward them than my own path? Or were these people and circumstances that came into my life actually more useful to my path and therefore making the decision not to go to grad school and not to move to the cabin was actually beneficial? And this idea, this paradoxical idea of two sides to every coin, right? We can change plans in our life in an effort to avoid something, in an effort to not accomplish what we want to accomplish out of fear, potentially insecurity of ourselves, a lack of self-awareness, codependency, or we can change our plans because we've genuinely found something more enriching. You know, we can use our intellect as a, uh, and our mind as a way to avoid and rationalize our emotions, or we can use our mind and our intellect to help us better understand and process our emotions. You know, we can use non-monogamy as a way to avoid intimacy, but we can also use it as a way to attain intimacy. And there are so many of these in life, and it's something I'm really fascinated by, both in the world at large and within myself, because it's so easy to take a thing and allow it if we want it to, to support any narrative that we want. You know, I recall doing this in therapy all the time, you know, um, that I would take something and use it to rationalize a shitty choice or a toxic pattern. I could have also used that to accomplish great enriching things, but it's all up to us, right? It's completely up to us to be diligent enough to ensure that we're making decisions for the right reasons and that we aren't being, you know, a lot of us are really smart um, in the sense that as kids or as young adults navigating our family life, society, you know, we've, we've learned how to survive And we've learned how to get our way and we've learned how to convince people of things. And it's really easy for us to rationalize our bullshit, not just to ourselves, but to other people. And I, one of my biggest goals over the past couple of years was not doing that anymore. Making sure that I was really making authentic choices and not using whatever I could to excuse bad, shitty choices. So, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about moving to Colorado and he said something so enlightening in regard to this decision and and probably decisions I'll make in the future and such a good marker of how to ensure um, that the decisions that we're making are serving us. And he said something to the extent of, It's important when making decisions to think about whether those decisions are opening doors or closing doors. And that just sort of like, as simple as that was, really blew me away because it was very clear to me, for example, when I made the decisions that I made in my early 20s to get married, to buy this house, that was closing a lot of doors. 
a lot of doors. <laughs> and this decision, the decision not to move to the cabin anymore, not to go to grad school, if I had followed through with both of those things, it actually would have closed a lot of doors. If I made the decision that I ended up making, it opened doors. And although you maybe wouldn't be able to apply that reasoning to all these sort of paradoxical ideas that I, that I spoke about, certainly this is a really good way to check yourself, right? If you're changing your plans, if you had a plan and then you wanted to do something else, if you're just moving forward with the plan you already have, is that decision opening doors or is it closing doors? And hopefully it's at least relatively simple to recognize that. So I guess I'll talk a little bit about my path and what I want to do. And I've been hesitant to do this. Well, I'll just start at the beginning. So (laughs) my goal with this podcast, my goal in a lot of the things I'm doing with my life, my goal in going to grad school, all of it, I've had this idea for a little while now. I don't quite remember when it started, but I believe it was sometime the summer of 2017 that in my process of kind of coming home to myself, becoming self-aware, recognizing all of the ways in which I'd sacrificed my own needs and desires for other people in society... I was really, you know, and I, what I had done was since I was young and you guys, whoever has listened to my podcast from the beginning knows that since I was a young kid, I've always operated in the world with the understanding that like I didn't agree and didn't understand with a lot of the ways that the world worked and a lot of the decisions that people were made were making. I knew everything was socially constructed. I knew we were all kind of just blindly following the expectations of society and it infuriated me but I also didn't really know how to opt out of it and I talked a lot about it I would always say like well I can have my own belief system and my own internal nature and opinions but I don't have to live my life that way and that's when I made a lot of decisions in my life that really uh ran you know, were oppositional to those opinions. So I was a big believer in non-monogamy, yet I was in a monogamous relationship. You know, I was a big believer in, you know, how dangerous consumerism was. And yet I bought a house and renovated a house and went through all the motions of being a pretty general consumer in the world. And I thought that was okay. I thought there could be some degree of disconnect between my beliefs and how I was living in my li- and how I was living my life because I I didn't really see a path forward in the opposite direction. I didn't know how to carve this out for myself. I didn't feel strong enough. I didn't feel like I had a community. And over the past couple of years, I made a decision that I was not going to do that anymore. That I was going to align my opinions with my life. That I was going to be the same on the inside that I was on the outside. The problem with that is that that required a lot of big radical changes. And one of the things that I decided was that if I was going to exist in this world, that again, I didn't just want to talk about these things. I wanted to live my life that way. So if I was talking about opting out of systems all the time, well, fuck, I better opt out of systems. (laughs) You know, if I was talking about wanting to raise maybe kids that I have one day, 
in a different way than I was raised in a community with lots of people, with lots of support in a way where I didn't have to participate in schooling and all of that stuff. Well, fuck, I better make that happen somehow. And so the idea that I had, which I know I'm not alone in, that started a year and a half ago or so, was that I wanted to buy a huge chunk of land and create a space, dedicate a space to living the way I wanted to live. Whether that you want to call that a community, a lifeboat, some sort of compound, we'll stay away from the word cult, obviously, not what I want to do. (laughs) But really finding a place to live in a new way and educating people about everything from sexuality to relationships to um, death to grief to food to agriculture, right? Not only living in different ways, but also having that space be a place where people could learn about those things, a place where people felt safe coming to be themselves and start from scratch, which is what I wanted to do, right? If we take away all of the expectations and desires of society, where and how do we begin again? And I wanted to create a physical space for that selfishly because that's how I wanted to live and how I maybe wanted to raise my kids one day. But also I wanted to create a space where other people felt comfortable doing the same. So this podcast has always been a step in that direction. It was always created for the purpose of me talking about all of these subject matters and all of these systems and all of these beliefs that in the end I wanted to fold into an actual project, an actual space, not just talk about it. Talking about it was the first step for sure, but meeting people and communicating with people about these new ideas and new ways to think of things was always a step in the direction of that. And so going to grad school at the time, you know, I've always been, I've always tried to find people to do this with me. Obviously something of this magnitude requires help. We can't, nobody can do it on their own, but I've struggled in finding people that were truly aligned with my beliefs and my goals and I've been hurt and disappointed and my trust has been, um, I've lost trust. (laughs) I lost trust in people and in partnering with people due to a series of events that's happened to me over the past few years. And so my decision to go to grad school, my decision to move to the cabin was like, all right, fuck it. I got to do this by my own. I've got to be completely autonomous. And so I am going to go to grad school, get this credential, hopefully meet people through that, form community, study while I'm in Colorado and go from there. Thing is, I met some people that want to do this with me and I'm pretty sure we'll see, but at the moment it feels like the real deal and the path to getting there, you know, going to Colorado and going to grad school, all of a sudden felt like a divergence from the path instead of a step on the path in the right direction. And so that's really how I decided to change, to change my mind was because I am clear of this path. I do know where I'm going. And I would like to make decisions that open doors in that direction. And 
I've always wanted to find people to do this with. Maybe that just happened a little bit sooner than I thought and in a way that I didn't expect. But if I did find those people and those people can help connect me to other people and help connect me to resources, well, I don't want to take a two-year break to go study a bunch of stuff in a, you know, that isn't completely even related to what I want to do. So, <clears throat> and, and I've been hesitant to share that on the podcast, what my goal is, because anytime that I have talked to people about it, I've gotten a lot of really positive um, feedback. I've got a lot of enthusiastic people that I'm like, yes, me too. That's what I want to do. And it actually got a little overwhelming. Um, I know a lot of people want to do something like this. And the way that I feel about it is that we all need to be taking steps in order to accomplish this, right? If you want to create a space like this too, what do you need to do to get there? Sure. Maybe you can come and help me out with mine, with my lifeboat, but we all need to build a shit ton of lifeboats. I do see that as a really instrumental step in addressing the problems that I talk about a lot on this podcast and just the problems we have in this world in general. We have to opt out of this crap. And I don't see another way to opt out of it other than to actually take steps to do so. So this is my plan. This is how I decided I was going to do it. And I hope that it inspires other people to do it too. And so instead of going to grad school and spending the next two years living at the end of the dirt end of a dirt road, getting a degree... I've decided instead that I'm going to probably spend the next couple years traveling as much as, as much as possible. Um, I want to visit other places like this and talk to people who are engaged in projects like this all around the world. I want to learn more about architecture. I want to learn more about economics. I want to learn more about community dynamics. I There are a lot of things, a lot of really important, complicated things that go into creating something like this, and it seems it would be more in my best interest to study those things firsthand um, than, again, it would be to go to grad school and get a random degree. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to spend the next couple years doing. Um, and it's also partially why I talk so much about Patreon and, and, and my desire to have you guys support me in that way and support this podcast. As I've mentioned several times, I would at least for now like to keep the podcast sponsor and ad free. Even if I wanted to take on sponsors or get ads, the podcast just is simply not big enough or popular enough in order for that to be useful or lucrative to anybody. Um, so the only way that I make any money doing this podcast is through donations, through your support. Um, I got a bunch of patrons right at first, and then we sort of reached a, a little bit of a, a lull there. Um, so if you enjoy the episodes that you've heard so far, if you support the path that I'm on and the project that I want to create and feel that you have five bucks a month, which is like, what, a latte? We all can afford that, right? Or at least most of us. 
Um, if you feel that you have that money to spare, not only is your donation supporting my ability to do this work and this research and to travel and to record episodes and share them with you and hopefully get tons of behind the scenes footage and share that with you as well, I really encourage you to help me out. Um, I hate selling myself. I hate asking for money, but it is, it's necessary, um, so Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Cates, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Again, not only does that money just go to the regular costs of maintaining and executing a podcast like this, but I also give my patrons lots of extra perks. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm recording monthly solo episodes. If I get to 100 patrons, we're at 20 now, but I have faith. We get to 100, I'll record two solo episodes a month. Um, I release a monthly column of inspiration called Minerva's Muse, where I share like an article that I that inspired me, um, something to watch, something to read, something to look at, art, places, things to go, uh, places to go, uh, things to donate to. So I release that weekly. I do horoscopes monthly. I've got shirts that I'm giving away at a certain level um, and also releasing monthly um, worksheets on different psychological, cosmological, philosophical ideas, which unfortunately I'm a tad late on, um, but I'm going to be releasing two hopefully on my flight to Bali, which I think I've mentioned on here, but yeah, I'm going to Bali. I'm leaving. I'm actually going, let's see, leaving Saturday and will be gone through the 28th. So um, pretty much two weeks. Um, my decision going to Bali, uh, again, with some friends was partially personal to have fun. I've always wanted to go, but also to do the first bit of research and, um, around creating this project. Like, are there places like this in Bali? What would that look like? Is it possible maybe this needs to be executed in another country? Who knows what's going to go on in our country? Um, so that's the first step in um, this whole journey for me. If you want to get more information and insight on all that I experienced there, again, Patreon, I'll probably be sharing a lot of um, exclusive videos and stuff from my trip over on Patreon. You can also always follow me on Instagram at... A-N-Y-A dot K-A-A-T-S. Um, the other cool thing about supporting me on Patreon and, and allowing me to travel more is that I get to conduct interviews with people in person. As, excuse me, as you'll notice in this upcoming episode um, with Bobby, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, the, you know, recording things remotely, it's cool, but the sound isn't as great. And... It's also not as fun. Like meeting people in person is way more fun. I think you're able to have a lot more intimate, engaging conversations when you meet people in person, but that requires money. It requires time. And, you know, it's hard to execute something like this when you're not making money doing it. <laughs> so I really appreciate all of the patrons that have supported me thus far. I, it's like my favorite part of this whole thing is that you guys are invested in me and I'm invested in you. And I just love that sort of relationship. Um, but so yeah, that would allow me, um, having more patrons, having a bit more money to support this would enable me to travel more and do more interviews in person, which is really important to me. Um, 
This episode with Bobby is so cool. I might say it's my favorite so far, at least one of my favorites. Um, I am super into regenerative agriculture. As I talk a bit about on the, on, in the interview, I started eating a paleo diet about 10 years ago, way before it was cool to do so. Um, and that led me into the world of regenerative agriculture. It introduced me to this amazing Ted talk by someone named Alan Savory. Bobby works at the Savory Institute. So we talk all about that at the show on the show. Um, I'm super passionate about this. It's, a, it's again, one of the ways in which I feel we need to opt out of the system of, um, the, of food production, the way that we consume meat, the way that we think about livestock, the way that we farm, the way that we think about agriculture. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. We, the detail that we are able to delve into on this show is pretty cohesive. We talk not just about agriculture practices, but also how, um, we also talk about nuance and like how we engage as humans in progress and change, which relates not just to the topics we discuss on the show, but a lot of what I've talked about in this intro around making sure that the choices we're making are positive and that we're not just out of fear continuing to do the same thing over and over again because it's comfortable even when it might become harmful and divergent. So I think that's all I got to say. Um, I will likely be releasing the next couple episodes from Bali. So that'll be cool. Um, and yeah, that's it. I'm going to shut up now. Enjoy the show and catch you on the other side. Okay, we are recording. Uh, All right. (laughs) Thanks, Bobby, for coming on the show. Um, So I was saying offline, I'm really excited. This is kind of the first episode that I'll be doing talking about the environment and agriculture, which is a huge passion of mine. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have someone from the Savory Institute um, come and talk about that with me. So um, as Bobby and I were discussing, we both kind of came at uh, Alan Savory's work from the same um, direction, which was through eating a paleo diet. And for me, <clears throat> I kind of had this intuitive idea of if this way of eating of whole unprocessed foods was so good for my body that I had this sense that it had to also be good for the planet. But it wasn't until like five years after I started eating that way that I discovered um uh, Alan Savory's TED talk. And then the light bulb kind of clicked for me. Um, and I know you had a similar experience, so I'd love to kind of hear how you came upon his work and, and got yourself into, um, this organization and a little bit about what you guys do. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, really appreciate you having me on today. Um, just, uh, for anyone who is unaware, um, Savory Institute, we're, uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization. We work to regenerate the grasslands of the world using a methodology uh, developed by our founder, Alan Savory, called holistic management. And so we, we exist on all six inhabitable continents and we train farmers and ranchers, um, you know, with holistic management and empower them with the tools they need to succeed. Um, I have been with the organization for about two years now. I'm the director of development, so I focus mostly on fundraising aspects, but also, t- um, you know, touch on uh, 
strategy, communications, marketing, and uh, you know, science, uh, anything that that interests me. Really, we're a we're a small team of twelve, so if I'm interested in something, I take it on. Um, but yeah, my background and and how I got to all this is is very similar to yourself. Um, you know, from the personal health space. I used to run ultra marathons uh, back in the day and was looking for a competitive edge. And so that kind of brought me to the paleo diet. Um, I'm a biological resources engineer by training. So I have a tendency to dive into the weeds and look at the peer reviewed literature and, you know, look at how the clinical trials are all set up and designed, um, you know, to really try to dig at what's underneath of the, you know, catchy headlines and, you know, the, the abstracts even of peer reviewed journals that often are, uh, summarized in a way that is not truly telling of, of what the data really indicates. Um, and so kind of having this skeptical eye on everything that is put forward in terms of what is healthy and necessary and suggested, uh, for health for an individual. Um, and that's what brought me to the paleo world. And, you know, as I was following a paleo diet, you know, starting back in 2008 or so, um, you know, looking for more and better um, options for grass-fed beef, you know, since grass-fed beef has more CLA and it's got a better omega-3 to 6 ratio, you know, uh, there's this aspect of it's also better for the environment. And that's a piece that I, you know, didn't really know much about. Um, but I wanted to know more cause I, I like to just understand all the nuance of, of the things in which I'm, you know, engaging and supporting. So started, you know, finding local farmers in my area. I was lucky enough that I was in the DC region and Joel Salatin, the polyface farm that many people know who's featured in the omnivores dilemma and, uh, food Inc documentary. Um, he was in the area or distributes to the area. So I was able to purchase my meat from him and go visit his farm, which was really incredible to see how he was moving his livestock around and how he had this multi-species operation of, of all these different animals kind of, uh, benefiting from the symbiotic relationships of, of plant and animal and planet. And then as time went on, I eventually stumbled upon a Ted talk by, this guy named Alan Savory. And that's when, you know, my whole world changed. Um, Alan's Ted talk really looks at how grazing animals exist on this planet, how they co-evolved with our grasslands for millennia, you know, before humans came along and screwed everything up. And we had a healthy imbalance planet with things properly functioning um, human nature has kind of not kind of has really screwed that up. Um, you know, we have placed ourselves in the, in the middle of these, you know, wonderfully complex biological ecosystems and tried to outsmart mother nature every step of the way. And in doing so we have wreaked havoc on this planet. Um, so Alan Savory, essentially, um, his life's work and what is, um, detailed in his Ted talk looks at how livestock, which are often vilified, are actually, uh, you know, that, that blame is fairly misplaced. The, the blame is really on the management of those animals, you know, 
grass-fed beef can be a wonderful tool for good for regenerating an ecosystem, or if mismanaged, it can cause massive destruction and degradation and, you know, turning grasslands into desert um, if handled improperly. And that's what he saw with his work. Um, you know, he was originally from Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia. Um, you know, he was managing game out there and looking at how the, the wildlife of Africa, um, you know, was degrading the landscapes. And, you know, through his research, he, he realized that there was more to it than just, are there animals on this land? Yes or no. It's, are there animals on this land? Are they in sufficient numbers of grazing animals to match the amount of available forage or grass that exists there? Um, do they have the right behavior as a grazing animal? You know, grazers are herd animals, and so they have a tendency to um, to bunch up in tightly packed herds because of the prey that exists. There's this beautiful predator-prey relationship that forces them together for safety. But in doing so, they also have specific ways in which they trample grasses and they're less selective over the grasses that they eat. Um, and in doing so, it's kind of, um, you know, creating the right conditions for fertility on that landscape. And then with their urine and their dung as that natural fertilizer, and then they move off of that piece of land and they kind of have these natural migratory patterns that exist. And those natural migratory patterns really allow for the proper amount of rest on that piece of land so that the grasses are able to fully regrow back to health and not just the grass itself above ground that you can see regrowing, but also that root structure down below regrowing because the root structure is really where all the magic happens. When you think of, of grass, you say, um, you know, grass has chlorophyll in it, which is this wonderful, has this wonderful little mechanism that does photosynthesis for us. And so it takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and through the magic of photosynthesis, turns it into carbohydrates, which gets stored underground. And so it's kind of this, this mechanism of these like solar cells, almost these little solar panels that we've just got billions and billions of them all over that are sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it underground to create fertility for landscapes. Um, it's all just, uh, it's just like this wonderful, vast ecosystem. So anyways, Alan developed these insights and created uh, grazing methodologies and decision-making frameworks, which we call holistic management and basically has allowed farmers and ranchers and even pastoralist communities that exist around the world to move beyond the standard practices. Um, most people that run livestock, they, they set them out to pasture and, you know, animals will graze for, you know, months and months at a time in a certain pasture. Um, and then they get rounded up and sold auction or, you know, off to slaughter, whatever it may be. And it, in these continuous grazing um, systems, there is overgrazing of the, the cow's favorite grasses you know, they keep going back to it before it's ready, before it's fully regrown, you know, it's grazed again and then it's grazed again and it's grazed again. And before you know it, all the root structure is gone and all the, the structure above ground is gone and the plant dies off. Similarly, their least favorite grasses end up being neglected. And so those get undergrazed. And so those are 
just rested and they're just like freestanding oxidized grass, which, you know, is dead and nothing comes along to digest it and reincorporate those nutrients back into the soil where they belong. You know, that beautiful, uh, life cycle. Um, so you have these overgrazed grasses and undergrazed grasses and eventually land just gets more and more barren with that barren landscape, you get erosion and you have carbon leaching out of the soil into the atmosphere. When you lose the carbon in the soil, you reduce the water holding capacity of the soil. Um, just tons of, of horrible consequences from the way that livestock are currently managed. And so by, by trying to mimic the ancestral grazing patterns of grazers on grasslands, um, you can mimic that predator prey relationship, you know, instead of having, you know, wolves or, or any other type of, you know, large predator to herd these animals. We can do that in today's day and age with portable electric fencing, or you can just herd by horseback or ATV or walk with the animals, um, like a shepherd. And those are all viable options to keep the animals herded and, you know, moving along. And if you can look at the, the growth patterns of the grasses, you can, you know, plan for the right amount of recovery for what's necessary on a certain piece of land and bring the animals back. Um, and in doing so, you're growing more grass, you're building more topsoil, you're sequestering more carbon, you're improving the water holding capacity of that land. You're able to raise more animals if you're growing more grass so you can, you know, create more nutrient dense food and make more money, which goes into the local economy. So it helps rural economies, which are all, you know, on the verge right now. Um, there's all these wonderful outcomes that, that happen when you go back and, and do things, you know, with a holistic perspective of, of what's truly needed on a landscape. Right. It's crazy. It's like you describing this right now. And I've had this experience before. And that was like such a magnificent overview of, of this entire concept. What's shocking to me, and what I'd like to deconstruct with you a little bit is like, when you hear something like that, it seems so intuitive. There's, there's little about it to me that is confusing or seems super radical or taboo in any way. And I think what I'd love to do is like jump back and talk about like the process that Alan had in regard to discovering this. And so, you know, what he learned and what it seems like a lot of people in agriculture learned around the causes of desertification were, I guess, point blank, too many animals overgrazing the land. And it's such a, yeah. a, a crazy example of like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, humans capacity to just kind of accept, accept something and move on. I think what was so shocking to me in his Ted talk was how in going back to these areas that had been stripped of livestock for the purpose of restoring the land that the inverse had occurred, that this land was mm -hmm. getting worse and worse and worse and more barren and yet just kind of sitting there and then no one's questioning it. Um, yeah. So it's like, it was that a result of just human, you know, irresponsibility and stupidity. And then also moving forward, what fascinates me is then how that same concept became almost enveloped in this anti-animal, anti-meat eating idea 
it was it was like sort of um, scooped up. I feel like by uh, industry that was more mm-hmm. concerned with um, their own interests, and then like it, it's sort of the same concept as you know bad research being presented in Time Magazine around fat, and it was just like that was accepted and caused this debilitating domino effect. Um, affecting our diet and the food industry and the medical industry, et cetera. So I I don't know how clear of a question that is, but like, (laughs) how did that, you know, or maybe just talk a little bit more about that discovery that he made and what your thoughts are around how this got as bad as it did and how we were so blind. Um, Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it ties back to, you know, not even necessarily, um, what specifically was at play in the agricultural or land management fields or, you know, what's happening in the health and medical worlds. I think ultimately what it ties down to is the way in which we as humans try to think and understand the, what's happening in the world around us. Um, we have a tendency, you know, with this industrialization of the globe and society to, to take things that are extremely complicated and you want to reduce it down to the individual parts to understand what's going on. And so by reducing it down to the individual part, that helps you understand what's going on in a complicated system. And it allows you to say, okay, well, if this piece right here is broken, that's integral for this thing to work. So it's like replace this part and everything's great. And you do that. And you try to understand as many of the individual components and you reduce them down. It's this very reductionist way of thinking. Um, the problem is, is reductionist thinking is really a tool for complicated systems, things that are mechanical and physical in nature. The the difference being is that we live in ecosystems that are dominated by biology. And biology is not complicated. Biology is complex, and there is a difference there. And so complexity is infinitely complicated. You will never be able to truly understand everything that is happening, all the underlying processes. You know, in biology and natural systems, there are more and more discoveries every day of how things work or how things that we have done a certain way have had all these other unintended consequences. You know, like John Muir says, when you pull on a string in nature, you see that everything is connected. And that's because it is a complex system. So the way in which we manage complex systems should be different than the way in which we manage complicated systems. Um, unfortunately we take that same way of dealing with these complicated systems and try to apply that reductionist thinking and reductionist management towards complex systems. And when we do that, we see many, um, we see many problems and unintended consequences. Um, you know, just like if you go and look back at what's happened with human health, we've, you know, there, there was a desire to improve human health. So the USDA came out with dietary guidelines in the seventies. Well, look at how that has gone for us. Like, have we gotten healthier as a nation because of that? Um, quite the opposite, you know, obesity and diabetes and cancer and Alzheimer's and everything else, all these diseases of Western society have absolutely flourished. And there's a very clear inflection point from when those dietary guidelines came out. The, the same thing has happened in the agricultural and land management industries, that the way in which we manage uh, what's happening on the landscape 
you know, we think we can control individual things. And so you look at, you know, look at croplands, for example, and, you know, people came out and they figured out that, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium are these critical minerals that are needed for plant growth. And so they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, let's put the three of them together, NPK, and let's, now this is fertilizer, and we spread this all over, uh, all over our land, and it grows more, and ta-da, problem solved. You know, we've got higher production rates. Well, what you're forgetting is that when you apply this and all like the herbicides and the fungicides and you know, everything else that comes along with that system, you're killing the underlying soil microbiology. And so even though you're getting some short-term gains in the long term, you're causing much more damage. Um, and that's what we're seeing with pretty much everything in how we deal with our natural systems and our biological systems. Um, so that was really the, the main revelation of, of Allen's is that this reductionist way of thinking is causing disastrous unintended consequences um, in, in how specifically we were made, we were managing grazing animals on grasslands. Um, so when you look to the methodology of holistic management, it's not just a, a grazing system that says, okay, you put this number of animals on this piece of land for this number of days, and then you move them. And, you know, it's just like a, a cookie cutter recipe that you can give the instruction manual to anyone. There is a grazing planning component of it, but even higher level than that is that it is a way of thinking and a decision-making framework that, that forces someone to take a step back and look at the, the whole of what they are managing, define what that whole is, define who are the decision-makers, who has veto power, what is your resource base, everyone that could be involved, and then you develop your holistic context. And that holistic context is really this, this true north that you, that the, the North star that you use in all of your decisions that factors in the environmental aspects that factors in the economic aspects of everything that you do and factors in the social pieces. Um, we have a tendency to focus just on one individual piece, you know, in agriculture, I, I'm going to make as much money as possible on my farm. And so that's going to cause you to make decisions where you, you take shortcuts and you cheat your way and you kick the can down the road in terms of environmental implications, or social implications for what you're doing. But if you force someone to think long-term about what they want their land to look like and how they want to hand that over to future generations, they're going to make decisions in a much different manner. Um, so holistic management forces someone to take that, that whole system view um, that really focuses on the triple bottom line of the economic, the ecologic, and the social and use that and consider that every step of the way when they're making decisions on what to do on their landscape. So Alan's framework, the crux of it really is taking that holistic perspective to land management in terms of all the decisions you make, but also looking at all the different processes for what's necessary for an ecosystem to function. So, you know, looking at the, the water cycle, to make sure that water is cycling through your landscape properly, to look at the mineral cycle, to see that nutrients are flowing and being reincorporated into the soil, to look at energy flow, which is do you have enough grass, green matter, that is actively photosynthesizing 
CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it down below ground where it belongs. And then the community dynamics, the community dynamics being the life that exists in that ecosystem. And, you know, this can be the grazing animals on the land, but it can also be the natural wildlife. Also look at the soil microbiology. You know, there should, there's a healthy functioning ecosystem should be teeming with life from all the different angles that you look at it. And so if someone's to have all four of those, you know, nutrient, water, energy, and community dynamics all being considered, and they're focusing on the triple bottom line, and there are, you know, uh, tools in place to remind them and context checks along the way, people end up making decisions that move them in that uh, regenerative direction. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't really quite thought about this before until you were talking about it, but you know, I think it's probably, um, pretty common that people understand, uh, the issues that agriculture overall have caused, I think both socially, uh, in terms of our physical health, um, and certainly in terms of environmental issues. And it's like, I think what's clear is that what we need to do is get back to the way that things were supposed to be and made to be, which I guess is to accept that, um, we as humans don't have all the answers, which I think gets into this like whole bizarre spiritual philosophical <laughs> debate for people. Um, but yeah. this, this, this idea of like, okay, like, cause I think about this too. Like, I think clearly what was the most healthy and natural was how we operated within like, you know, hunter gatherer society. Um, and yet here we are, we have a mm-hmm. huge population that needs to be fed. We have a system set up that right now in order to sustain it would need some type of agriculture. So thinking about how holistic management is potentially a way to bridge that divide between, yes, we have land that operates as such, but we also have this population in modern civilized reality. Um, and how mm-hmm. do we how do we connect those dots, right? And I think it's like, I think hopeful and inspiring to me because it does speak to the way that humans can work with the planet in a harmonious way. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's talk, let's, let's delve into this a little bit more just in terms of environment. So I think, you know, I've seen as someone who comes from the paleo whole food world that there's quite a bit of, misinformation that floats around about animals, meat production. I've seen countless studies cited that talk about how even like pasture, pastured grass-fed meat is unsustainable, perhaps more so than factory farming. Um, so <laughs> yeah, fun times. Um, and I don't, and like, I guess, you know, it's clear where that probably comes from. I think if you follow the money and whomever is conducting the research, it probably is pretty illuminating as to where that information, um, is coming from. Um, yeah. but in terms, you know, in terms of the climate, so is, does holistic and, uh, management suggest that we, need to add animals back to the land and how, if at all, does that affect us negatively? And what is the difference between what you're suggesting and something that is unsustainable and environmentally unfriendly, like factory farming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the common agreement that, you know, even, you know, going and having a conversation with a vegan, um, 
factory farming and feedlots and these huge monocultures, you know, industrial ag is just absolutely god awful for our environment. No one wants that. It's reaping, you know, horrible consequences on this planet. And we just need to stop with the large agribusiness, um, you know, industrialization of agriculture on the whole. I think the blame is often placed on livestock because in the animal husbandry world, you see these feedlots of animals, which are just disgusting conditions. And there's manure pits that come off of them, which leak terrible amounts of methane into the atmosphere, plus the enteric emissions that come out of the animals themselves. Um, it is just a horrible, horrible system that is, you know, uh, from gas emissions problem, horrible from the landscape. It's, you know, degrading the crap out of it. Um, from the water necessary and the ethics, uh, just all of it. It is just a disastrous uh, system that we need to end. I think this is where, you know, before we jumped on this call, you and I were talking about how there's often the black and white and people just see it as, you know, good and bad, black or white, yes or no, you know, my group versus your group. And they don't, really look at the gray area that exists in the middle because there is so much nuance that is being overlooked when you just create this extremely polarized black or white scenario. So in raising livestock, for example, yes, livestock from traditional conventional uh, livestock standards, it is horrible for the environment. It's wreaking havoc. But what they're ignoring is that there is an alternative to that. And the data shows are grazed properly on pasture in, you know, in a holistically managed scenario. You don't see any of those degrading, horrible for the environment numbers. In fact, you see quite the opposite. You see more carbon being sequestered into the soil than is being emitted. And that is factoring in methane emissions as well. So yes, when cattle um, when cattle burp, there is a certain amount of methane that is released. The methane is 30 times more uh, problematic in the atmosphere than CO2. But what is overlooked is that when livestock are grazing on a piece of grassland, with healthy soil conditions that they're creating, there is a greater presence of what are called methanotropes and methanotropes are methane oxidizing bacterial species. So they're taking methane that exists in the atmosphere and they're oxidizing it. They're using it as their fuel source. And so if you have a healthy grazing operation on a piece of land, you have soil that is teeming with life, including these methanotropes who are oxidizing the methane that exists and they're oxidizing more than is being released out of the animal. So you actually have a net sink for drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis down into the soil. And then you also have the methanotropes that are oxidizing that methane that exists as well. So you're getting this twofer of all the CO2 and the CH4 from methane. You're, uh, you're drawing that out of the atmosphere. That's the piece of the puzzle that most people don't look at because it requires 
to look at a, a large, you know, to look through a larger lens than just cows good or, you know, cows bad, plants good sort of, you know, black and white scenario and rather say, well, it's not necessarily livestock altogether. It depends on how they're managed and not just are they grass fed or not. Are they being managed properly with their movements across the landscape so that you're building soil life? Because if you're building soil life, then you're oxidizing more of the methane and you'll have a net carbon sink. That's a much more detailed conversation, but it is possible. And it's something that we see. And it's something that we see in the published literature. There's Paige Stanley had a, a wonderful paper that she published earlier this year that was looking at the, the carbon flux out of properly managed soils and shows that it's a net carbon sink in the properly managed ones versus the continuous grazing, you know, traditional approaches, which are a, a net emitter. Um, and there's other papers that have similar results. So it's not just a hypothesis that's floating around there. There's, there's solid science that backs up these notions. Um, and then for things like uh, water and land use, you know, the way that feedlot animals are being raised right now, there's a tremendous amount of land that's necessary. You'll see some folks from the industrial perspective uh, argue in favor of feedlots because they're able to raise more animals and, you know, therefore create more calories on a smaller piece of land than if you were to have them out on pasture. Well, that may be true just looking at like, you know, how much land is that animal standing on? But when you factor in the vast amount of cropland that is necessary to grow all the feed for those animals in the feedlot, that becomes a very different scenario. That cropland, instead of making feed for animals, which are in these contained animal feeding operations, that land used to be pasture that could be grass that's photosynthesizing more carbon down into the soil, but instead we're using it for crop production, which you know has all fossil fuel machinery that's operating on top of it to make it work and it's being you know there's inputs of fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides that are being sprayed, which have all sorts of other implications and so we have this system in which it's become very industrialized and you know the the feedlot system depends on the cropland system and the cropland systems depend on the chemical systems and you know there's all these ways in which business is making money and you know creating jobs quote unquote that you know so many people use as an excuse to to keep doing the wrong thing but really all it needs to be is as simple as animals on land moving as they used to, behaving as they used to. And it doesn't have to be terribly complicated. And if you do that, and if you do the right thing, not only are you going to have a more beautiful landscape and animals that are raised, you know, being able to express, you know, the truest form of what they are as, you know, as a living being, you know, a cow grazing on grass, but you're also getting the proper environmental outcomes in terms of, turning back the hands of time of all this damage that we've done to the environment. We have the potential to reverse climate change by sequestering carbon and we can rebuild all these habitats. You know, we can rebuild grassland ecosystems by grazing them properly. It's not just how do we get by in the, the day and age of climate change. We can fix it. We can turn back and, you know, undo a lot of the damage that has been done.
Yeah. Blows my mind. Um, because it's so <laughs> simple. <laughs> like, um, I, okay. So let's say, what would it look like as far, let's talk about, I want to talk about both the environment and dietary, what our diet would look like. Let's say if we were to get rid of all of the factory farms and replace and compensate, uh, grazing lands with adequate animals and, um, allow them to move on the land as they uh, were intended to, what would that look like in terms of our diet? Because I do often hear people say things to me when I talk about that I still eat meat, that like there's just way too much, we're eating way too much meat. And I don't actually disagree with that. To me, I always thought of it from like a hunting perspective. (laughs) Like if I'm going to go out, I should only be eating as much as I could personally hunt for because that to me seemed like the most sustainable practice. So I'm curious, like, do you have any information or insight on, let's say we were completely doing this properly, how would that affect our diet as as far as animal consumption, either positively or negatively? As far as animal consumption goes, I don't believe that anyone has done, you know, a true analysis of what is being done out there. And if things were to properly switch over to holistically managed grass fed grazing operations and to turn all of those crop lands back to, to grazing lands as they once were, I'm not sure anyone has done a full accounting of that and what that would look like in terms of, um, you know, uh, daily consumption per capita. Um, what I can say though, is that those that look at, you know, the amount of meat, for example, that is being consumed and they say, Oh, well, you know, meat is a problem. So therefore we should eat less of it. Well, if you're taking one thing out of the diet, you're replacing it with something else. And people are replacing their, you know, piece of steak or burger or whatever it is with a impossible burger or with, you know, more corn or soy or something else. Oftentimes it's being replaced by foods that are more heavily processed, come from GMO crops that are raised on croplands that are just vast swaths of monocultures that are, you know, uh, causing erosion and soil degradation and loss of habitat and all these other things. And so just because the plant-based burger or whatever it is that they're putting on their plate um, in lieu of that doesn't have, you know, a cute, cuddly face on it, it doesn't mean that it's causing any less damage to the environment. Um, so there's an aspect of, yes, I think that we should eat less conventionally raised meat, but if there is an alternative to that and there is regeneratively raised meat, which every animal that is raised on that landscape is doing its part to sequester carbon and rebuild wildlife habitat and empower rural communities I don't see why we would want to limit the amount that we do there. You know, atmospheric carbon's at 408 right now. We need to bring that down to 350 to be at a safe level. We should be encouraging as much regeneratively raised meat production as we can humanly stand. We've got 5 billion hectares of grassland on this planet 
And only a small fraction of that is really being used for grazing operations. I mean, much of that is just, you know, large desert or, you know, national parks or like front yards and mediums and highways. And there's so much grazing land that exists that is being untapped that if we were grazing those lands properly, and yeah, we're not going to graze the mediums and highways and stuff. That's just kind of to point out that it exists, but you know, 5 billion hectares of land, that's one third of the earth's terrestrial surface that has co-evolved to be dependent on grazing animals. And so to remove grazing animals from that equation means that that one third of the earth's surface is going to continually get worse and release more carbon into the atmosphere and make all these global crises that we're dealing with get worse and worse. So I'm in favor of more meat if it is raised properly. If it is raised in a regenerative manner, then eat as much of it as you want. Use the full animal and have leather production coming off of that. We should be using that for wool production, for cashmere, for dairy. There's so much more than just you know meat and the benefits that come along with raising livestock. Um, and, you know, some people will look at that and say, okay, well, you know, why do you have to, why do you have to kill them? You know, like we should just like let them graze. And it's like, well, okay. Do you want to go buy a, a 10,000 acre ranch and run livestock on it and not be able to sell those animals and make a living? Like I, I can't imagine that anyone is going to manage the one third of the earth's surface that requires grazing animals just out of the goodness of their own heart without being able to make a living off of it. So there's this aspect where it needs to be a viable solution so that the person who is managing that can, can feed their family and can continue to do this into future generations. There's that long-term sustainability aspect that, you know, it needs to be economically viable. So you can't make decisions just based on the one environmental piece, all three need to be considered at all times. Um, I feel like there was more to that question that you were asking that I, you know, I, I, I rambled a bit and I feel like I probably missed some pieces. Um, actually one piece that I think is really important, actually the numbers that are out there in terms of, you know, people saying, Oh, well, if you turned, you know, all of our land into grass fed, um, you know, that currently exists for cropland that you wouldn't be able to feed the world. And to that, I would say that may be the case, but that is not factoring in the potential for land regeneration and the ability to be able to raise more animals on the same piece of land, which is what we do with holistic management. Our promise that we give to farmers and ranchers that they'll be able to at least double their production. So double their carrying capacity on their same piece of land. We often see more than that, you know, 5X, what you're able to carry on a single piece of land just by better decision-making. So there is an ability, yes, to convert monocultures back to grassland and then to increase the productivity of those grasslands and the grasslands that currently exist. And then there's also the potential for vast amounts of land that are grazing lands right now that are non-arable, they are non-suitable for crop production, where the only thing that you can raise or grow on that land is grazing animals. Um, and if you do that in the proper way so that you're getting the 
you know, ideal efficiency in terms of amount of animals that you can raise on that land because you're growing more grass. Um, I would ponder that if we were to take all of those steps, we would be able to feed our planet. I don't have the solid numbers on that. Um, the other question then becomes, we are at 8 billion people on this planet. Is it even possible to feed the planet in a way that is beneficial for the long-term health and survivability of life on this planet? I believe that we're at the, we're over carrying capacity of the planet and that's the entire different conversation in and of itself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. So jumping back. So if we're talking about the fact that there is this like one third of the terrain that is, could be grazed that is not being grazed one, am I to assume that at some point the animal population grazing population on that land was what it was supposed to be? And if so, what, uh, change that I'm assuming human mismanagement potentially both in the realm of hunting improperly and or doing exactly what Alan Savory's work discovered which was just stupid agricultural practices <laughs> um like is yeah. there a time when we look back to be like oh yeah like there was this number of bison on the land or, or this is when things were functioning as they should be almost like a marker of what to return to or what we could return to yeah i mean but that's tough to say like when exactly is that point because you know people will say oh the good old days and like let's just turn things back to how it used to be it's like well i mean does that mean you want to turn it back to how things were and in 1776 when Columbus got here or, or when we signed, not 1492 is when Columbus got here. Jesus. Wow. My facts. Okay. Let's not, <laughs> don't rely on me for <laughs> history. Um, or do we want to turn back the clock to like 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs were here? I mean, there's various different points in the evolution of this planet and you know, how things were in balance, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, land and animal and plant and human and, and how all those work together. I would say that before the advent of agriculture is when things were last in proper balance. You know, 10,000 years ago, at the advent of agriculture, when we started domesticating plants and animals and we started rooting ourselves down in terms of societies and you know creating towns and cities and and all of that we you know when we started moving beyond being hunter-gatherers i think that is when we started to see implications of humans taking domain of the natural world rather than living as part of that vastly complex web um, i think the implications from that were slow for ten thousand years um, and really in the last, you know, couple hundred years with the, um, you know, modern industrial world that we live in, that's really when things just skyrocketed in terms of, you know, putting the pedal to the metal on accelerating all the damage that was being done. Um, you know, there are people that say, oh, well, you know, ain't, you know, the, the cultures, you know, the, the native cultures that existed on the landscapes, they did everything perfectly and lived in harmony with nature. I believe that they were much more in tune with nature than we are now. But I believe that any sort of rooted civilization was using nature for their benefit and may not have been 
um, operating in a truly regenerative manner that would have guaranteed, um, you know, long-term survivability, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years into the future. So I, I would say probably 10,000 years ago is when everything was properly imbalanced. It's when we had sufficient numbers of grazing animals and sufficient numbers of predators, there was the adequate predator prey relationship causing the right animal behavior and the right migratory patterns. And then humans came along, we domesticated our grazing animals, we killed off the predators, and we've just screwed it all up since then. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a book I read. I don't know if you're familiar. I think it was called um, Rambunctious Garden by like Emma Morris. Myris. Um, but she kind of speaks to this whole idea of like, even if we could return back to something that at this point we are too far, we've come too far to return. And so that the solution is not, is not to like, Oh, like, you know, even in terms of different plants that make their way or animals that have made their way into different climates and different countries and onto different continents that they didn't belong. It's like, we're, it's too late. We can't, we also, and, and not only is it too late, but like there is some sort of natural fluidity to that, right? That we are a constantly evolving planet and that humanity, although misguided at times, can't just stop, right? Like I think we have to figure out how progress can be beneficial instead of harmful. Um, but I think it's yeah. endlessly inspiring because it it allows us to say, okay, actually we're not you know, humanity, again, although maybe overpopulated and not so smart at times, we can still take responsibility here and play an active role in helping the planet get back to what it needs to be, whether that's through, you know, like designing ecosystems or um, different types of like parks or um, just grazing animals, right? Like how do we creatively reinvent something and move it forward positively? Uh, instead yeah, of absolutely. going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got 8 billion people on this planet. We've got cities, we've got roads, we've got fences, we've got infrastructure that all exists. We've got droughts in certain areas of the planet. We can't just, you know, like is done in, in some areas where, you know, there's like land preservation efforts and they're like, well, we'll just, you know, remove the fences and, and let mother nature take over and everything is going to be perfect. It's like, well, if we had sufficient grazing animals and sufficient predators, if you had the proper balance of life and community dynamics there on that landscape, then yes, leave mother nature to do her thing. However, we've screwed things up enough that we can't just like wipe our hands and say, all right, mother nature, you got this. Like we need to actively participate in undoing the damage that we have very actively caused as well. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of the discussions in the food space on sustainability, I think they come with the right intentions, but sustainability is, you know, it's the ability to sustain. Well, the system that we're operating in is causing tons of damage. And the way that our world and our ecosystems are right now, we don't just want to sustain this level of health. There is vast improvements that can be done. And so we need to go a step beyond sustainability. And that's where regeneration comes into play. Like we need to undo the damage. We need to regenerate health back to our landscapes, 
back to our communities, you know, back to our personal health. There's so much regeneration that needs to happen. Um, and you know, it starts at the ground level with how we, you know, connect with our food and how it's raised and, you know, what, you know, what the natural world needs, uh, to thrive and have abundance. And when we pay attention to what the natural world needs for abundance, that provides abundance back to us. If we listen to those ancestral patterns of health, just like, you know, you, you know, coming, both of us coming from the ancestral health scene, you know, if you eschew the, the processed foods and the junk and, you know, the industrial raised crap, and you just eat real food like our hunter gatherer, you know, ancestors did, you know, what we evolved to eat. Well, not only will you lose weight, but, you know, you'll probably sleep better. There's probably, you know, those aches and pains that you've got in the joints or maybe the skin issue that you have. All sorts of things start to get better just by addressing the underlying issue of what does the body need. In that same way, if we just give the land what it needs and address the underlying health of the land, it gives us back abundance in dividends in terms of food security, water security, um, you know, reversing climate change, you know, rural economics, wildlife habitat, all of these things tie back to how we manage our land. And there is a fairly simple way to do it. It just flies in the face of how things are done today. So it's met with opposition because when you challenge the status quo, well, the system is going to fight against that. And that's what we're up against right now. Right. Yeah. And can we talk a little bit more about that? Like what are the biggest pain points for the Savory Institute or just holistic management, regenerative agriculture in general? Like what are, what are you guys up against I mean, aside from like mm. haters on the internet, which are very prevalent, <laughs> um, uh, but like where, yeah. where, right? Like, I mean, I guess that's such a broad question, and like to some extent, it's like I think following the the money. Um, but if you can speak at all broadly about where the where you're hit, where are you hitting roadblocks the most? Yeah. Oh God, what a big question. Um, so I think depending on what your angle you're looking at it from, there's roadblocks everywhere you look. I mean, from the consumer perspective, we are up against the anti-meat agenda that is saying all meat is terrible and it's destroying the planet. Everything should be plant-based, even though that is an oversimplified, not looking at the true implications of, you know, the environmental aspects of a plant-based diet. Um, which people aren't taking full accounting of. Um, so there's that, you know, kind of anti-meat agenda that I think is um, very dangerous on the just like general public side of things. Um, more into the agricultural industry, there is, you know, uh, let's see, where would the main issues be? I think there are people who push back against Alan. Um, you know, Alan Savory has been touting holistic management really since the early eighties is when he came over from Zimbabwe to the States and started uh, teaching these methodologies to farmers and ranchers. And he's received pushback ever since because it really challenges the norm of what everyone has been taught, you know, from, you know, the good old boys clubs of, of how to do things. 
Um, and so, you know, people will say that, you know, his, his methodology is, you know, holistic has this, you know, kind of, you know, woo woo hippie, um, vibe to it that many people, you know, claim that then it's not backed by science. But if you go and look at the science, um, you know, the terminology that they use in the literature is, is often adaptive multi-paddock grazing amp for short. And so if you, if you go into, uh, you know, any of the journals and look for amp grazing, there's tons of literature that shows how it increases productivity, improves water holding capacity. You know, you're growing more grass, you're sequestering more soil, you're, you know, the animals are healthier. You look at the nutrient profiles of the grass and the nutrition there. I mean, there's, there's so much evidence that this works yet people are still burying their heads in the sand saying it doesn't. So that's more from like the institutional sides of things in, you know, not wanting to change. And then I think the, the biggest problem is, you know, Savory Institute, we're a, a nonprofit. We, we teach holistic management around the world. And it's not like we're able just to go and knock on the front door at a farm and say, hey, you're doing things wrong. Here's this better way. Like, that doesn't work. Uh, even if someone sees a piece of land that looks healthy, you know, like they see their neighbor who is, you know, managing holistically and has all these wonderful outcomes. That doesn't mean they're going to go and do it. You know, admitting that they are doing something wrong is admitting that the way that they've been doing this thing their whole life and chances are the way that their dad did it and that their granddad did it and their great granddad did it and generations and generations. It's saying that all of them were wrong and no one wants to do that. So there's this aspect of human nature not wanting to change. Um, similar to, you know, we know that exercising and eating right is good for us. But if it were that simple, everyone would be exercising and eating right. But there's this aspect of human nature that even though you know that's the right thing to do, change is hard. And especially change at, you know, the agricultural level when you're, you know, you've got tons of vested interests in terms of tradition or, you know, uh, you know, the infrastructure that you have in place and the machinery that you own or just like the brand that you've built to change things is often like changing the direction of the Titanic, or it may seem like that at least. Um, so instead of really trying to change the direction of the Titanic, which is absolutely necessary, you know, people just arrange the deck chairs and, you know, say like, oh, okay, well, I changed things and, and now we're good. Like, no, we, we need to change direction, y'all. There need to be big changes, but that's easier said than done. Yeah, well, I didn't even think about, like, it's such a potent metaphor for so many of the problems I feel that we have in our world right now is this myth or belief that we adopted about how of like human progress and you know, that as time goes on, that being more and more civilized has led to positive results when that may not be true. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think that can exist uh, environmentally, but even just personally in the way that we operate uh, on how we raise our children or the ways that, you know, anything, the ways that we educate um, kids or 
um, the way yeah. that we eat. Right. And it's this, I, we do like that. It's amazing to me, you telling that story around, like, it's like going to someone's house and being like, you've been doing this wrong for generations. And that requires such a, a shift in perspective for per, per, per people. And I find like, there's such humility in change because change requires us to admit that like something we so vehemently defended or enacted was maybe not the best choice. Um, and that there's yeah. this like personal responsibility of, you know, well, to admit uh, that we've been doing this for so long is to admit is to admit my mm -hmm. participation in it. And that can be extremely difficult across the board. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's not even just that aspect of admitting that there is a better way or that you've been doing things wrong. There's also the aspect of the system is set up for you to fail every step of the way, just right. like there is so much advertising and hyper palatable food and junk and crap and convenience just at our disposal and eating right and exercising requires you to really go out of your way to do so. It's the same thing in the agricultural space. The way that um, commodity subsidies exist and crop insurance uh, and, you know, bank loans and the way that uh, processing facilities are required to have a USDA inspector on site 24-7 and like the costs of that and just every step of the way, producers that are doing things the right way have to jump through so many hoops to get to where they are, and yet they still are competing against conventional ag, which is propped up through subsidies so that the cost difference makes you know cheap industrial food extremely cheap to acquire. And so the real cost of food, which you know factors in the environmental aspects and the social aspects and everything, if done the right way, food production is more expensive than what we are used to paying. You know, we look at the percentage of our income that we spend on food as Americans. And, you know, it's in the single digits. I think it's in the low single digits compared to most other countries in the world. They're, they're spending upwards of 20, even 30% of their annual income on food. And so we've come to expect cheap and convenient and fast and so has the system along the way in terms of how it deals with farmers from the processing, from the bank loans, you know, from the, the rules and regulations that come through um, the federal or the local governments. Every step of the way, it is difficult to do the right thing. And it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, in terms of doing the right thing, can we talk practically about how individuals can assist I guess, one, the Savory Institute and your work, but also generally, how can one person participate in this to proliferate positive change? Yeah, well, you know, it was saying that, you know, every step of the way producers face these hurdles. And so I think, you know, of course, you know, vote for uh, you know, legislators who are going to enact laws that are more, you know, ecologically friendly and, you know, folks like, um, you know, I'm here in Colorado and, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a connection to our local Senator, Michael Bennett. And, you know, we get to talk to him about regenerative agricultural issues and, 
you know, kind of bounce around ideas of what can be included in the farm bill. And, you know, so I think there's a level of advocacy that, you know, we should all be doing in today's day and age, given, you know, the dire consequences that we're facing from everything that's coming out of our government. Um, but in addition to, to voting for the right people in office, we vote with our dollar three times a day for the food we put in our bodies. And what that does when we purchase food that is either good for the environment or harmful to the environment, we are sending signals back to the industry that this is what we want and this is what we are willing to tolerate. And so if we're buying cheap food that is just black box, we don't know what, where it's coming from, we don't know the environmental implications of it, we're going to get more and more of that. We're going to get more and more disconnected from where food comes from. And the system is just going to output more of that to us. Versus if we say, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to go out of my way to find producers that are raising animals the right way. And right now that's difficult to do. Uh, there is not like, I wish it was as easy as just saying like, oh, I'll just go to this website and boom, there's a map of everyone and boom, problem solved. It's not like that right now. Um, that savory, we're trying to help consumers along the way, you know, since we've got this global network of producers that we've trained, um, you know, Sabre Institute was founded in 2009. We've trained, you know, uh, over 5,200 land managers and affected management of some 22 million acres so far, which, you know, that's great. But, you know, where is that product? How are you going to choose that at the store later today? Um, it's not that simple. So right now we're, um, we're prototyping a program that, um, is soon going to be more largely available, but it's called land to market where we are trying to differentiate regenerative products in the marketplace so that when you go and say, Hey, this steak versus the other one, which one's better. If you see the seal on it, that says ecological outcome verified, you know, Oh, that's the one that they measured what was happening at the ground level. There is data to prove that this regenerated the health of the land. That's the one you should be voting for. That's the one that you should be buying when it's, whether it's your, you know, your meat or your dairy from the yogurt you're buying or the wool scarf that you're buying or your leather bag. All of these things are products of animal agriculture and there's a way to do it properly and there's a way to do it poorly. So we're trying to differentiate those products. So that's something that you'll be seeing more of. Um, aside from that, I would say support those producers that are doing the right thing. Um, you know, get in, you know, ask questions, you know, go, you know, shop at your farmer's market, um, you know, talk to the producers and ask them, you know, what they are doing and how they raise their animals, you know, how you know, ask them questions about ecosystem health and carbon sequestration and, even if you don't know a lot about it, just ask the questions that make sense to you. And you'll be able to tell if that person is just like, ah, well, yeah, yeah, we, we do things the right way. Don't worry. And write you off. Well, that should be a red flag. If there's someone who gets super excited and wants to talk to you about soil health and microbes and, you know, grazing planning, that is someone who I think you can have, uh, you know, good faith in. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different angles to, to tackle it from, but yeah, that's about as good as we've got right now. Oh, well, I guess. And then the other thing would be to support organizations that support 
farmers that are doing the right thing. So Savory Institute, we are a nonprofit. So, you know, we welcome donations to, to help us along the way. Um, you know, like when you listen to NPR and they're like, join to become a sustaining member of your local NPR station. Um, well, we think sustaining isn't good enough. We think it needs to be regenerating. So we've got regenerating members for uh, the Savory Institute. So you can become a regenerating member and, you know, you get access to webinars with Alan and discounts on products. And, you know, there's a digital platform where all of our hubs from around the world get together that you get access to. So, you know, there's perks for becoming a member. Um, so, yeah, those are all different ways that I think you can start moving in the right direction. Cool. Well, thank you. I think that's... Um definitely super helpful. And I would, I would add to that too, just like educating yourself, you know, I like go watch Alan's Dead talk. If you haven't, I think um, yes. sharing this podcast, right. I think so much of it, I mean, certainly there is some backlash, but I also think a great deal of it is just lack of knowledge. Um, and so the more, that, the more that we can share that information, I mean, you know, just like the first 10 minutes of you talking on this podcast, it's like, I don't, know many people who are, that's not true. Maybe I just hang out with cool people, but a lot of people who I have that same experience are like, Oh yeah, of course. Like that all, I totally understand this now. And there's this like huge connected web. And I think that moment is just so impactful, not in just how we decide to move forward, but also how we interact with others and educate others on it as well. And being brave enough to discuss these things with people, right? Like regardless of their, taboo or politically incorrect nature it's like it's important it's the planet you know Um, it's it's the only planet we've got and unless elon musk is successful in us colonizing mars which you know i really don't think that's the best plan for you know the long-term survival of you know the human species you know i think we got to take care of, of this planet the best that we have if we want future generations to survive It's the only choice we have. Right. And I would say like, even to add to that, I think especially like there's always the argument of like, oh, I can't afford to buy these types of products. And I think that's a valid point. And I think all the more reason for people that do have the means to do so, um, that like to really take that on as a responsibility of like, okay, well, if I have the means to support these type of industries, not just through my, through donations, but also through the food that I'm eating and, you know, the way that I'm interacting with people and educating people, it's like take on that responsibility because it's, yeah. it is hard right now. And the way that the system is set up, it does make it really difficult as you just explained to even like find what you're looking for. Um, so if you do, yeah. and you do have the capacity and means to find it, like my goodness, do it. Um, yeah. And I would say, you know, for those that are saying eating, eating right is expensive. Yeah. If you go to the meat counter at whole foods and you're going to say, I need, hundred percent grass fed ribeyes. Yeah. That's going to get really freaking expensive because there are a lot of middlemen in that process. You need to go directly to the farmer and say, Hey farmer, I'm interested in buying a cow. And so you go with three of your friends, you each get a quarter of that You buy a deep freezer from home Depot, which costs like 150 bucks or whatever, put a deep freezer in your garage or your living room or your closet, whatever. And then keep that quarter of beef there, you know, a cut in the individual steaks and ground and bones and organ meats and, you know, roasts and, and all the other wonderful stuff. And so then you're eliminating all the middlemen. When you buy from Whole Foods or wherever, 
get grass fed, you know, you're going to be paying, you know, upwards of $20 a pound for certain cuts versus if you're buying directly from a farmer, chances are you can get grass fed closer to five, $6 a pound. And you're not wasting any piece of that animal. You're using the full animal so that there's no waste. It's going to force you to be more creative in the kitchen. You're going to have a deeper appreciation for all the different cuts and where they come from. And, you know, really the ability for one animal's sacrifice to be able to feed and sustain an individual for months and months at a time is incredibly powerful. And then you go back and think like, oh, and then this cow did so much more in terms of they were grazing grass and creating a healthier ecosystem. Like each bite of this that you're having out of your freezer is also a step towards reversing climate change and improving a lot on all these global crises we have. Like, well, hell, how could I afford not to do this? Right. Yeah, it's really just about like becoming an active participant in this overall cycle. And like all it takes is a little bit of a just rethinking of how we are connected to all these different points. And it's like, okay, so instead of buying your meat at Whole Foods, you buy, you split a cow with someone, you get a bigger freezer. It's like, that's not that difficult. But as you just said, it opens you up to this, these myriad of of connections to you know, not just the livestock, but the planet and our own interaction with both, which I think is kind of quite magical. And and probably, I would argue, <clears throat> influences you to think that way or in a different way about a lot of different things in, in life. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I got started on this path is I was like, well, grass fed beef is friggin expensive. Okay, I'm gonna buy a freezer, I'm gonna start buying directly from a farmer. And as I started going driving out to the farm to pick up my meat, got to see the farm, got to ask them questions, got to understand it, got curious and read books. And guess what? This is my life now because it's, it, it is that important that we all need to care about this. I mean, there's so many people from, you know, uh, rural communities that, you know, we, we look at many, we look at a lot of our country as flyover states. You know, you, you think that because you live in more of a uh, an urban center along the coast that everything in the middle is just like, meh, we don't need to care about that. Well, like the, the rural communities that exist in the middle of America, the ones that are producing the food that we depend on and the fiber that we depend on day in and day out, like they know that they're called flyover states. And that just kind of adds to the divisiveness of it. Um, so, you know, there's an aspect of getting back in touch with where food production comes from and all the different nuances of it, because it's not as simple as like, Oh, raise them on grass. Yes or no. You know, there's okay. Are you in an arid environment where you can't grow a ton of grass? So there you're going to run more of a cow calf operation. And then those animals go get shipped to Wisconsin or somewhere where there's more grass grown because there's more precipitation and economically it's viable. And the processing is this, that, and the other. like there's so much nuance involved in food and fiber production that we would all benefit from having a little more ecological literacy than we currently do. Totally. Love it. Well, this conversation was so amazing. Uh, I could probably go on forever, but um, I have two last questions. (laughs) One is where can people find you specifically and also the Savory Institute as a whole? And then if you could give one book, to everyone. It can either be about this or just a book that you've really enjoyed that's really helped to um, frame and expand your mindset on some of the things we talked about. What might that book be? Mm. Well, I almost feel like it's cheating to say 
Alan's book, Holistic Management, because no, you know that's not. a given. So, so I'm not going to say that one. Okay, although, wink, I just dropped that one as a hint. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Best book to recommend to folks. There's a wonderful new book out uh, by an Australian author named Charles Massey, and it's called Call of the Reed Warbler. And Charles has done an amazing job of chronicling all these different people who are innovators and practitioners in the regenerative agricultural scene, um, mostly through the lens of uh, Australian producers. But I think that Australia is a very interesting example of looking at what would the U.S. look like if we didn't have commodity subsidies and crop insurance and, you know, all the industrial ag issues that we currently see through the USDA. Um, so everything in Australia is grass fed. And because of that, there's this really incredible network of holistic managers out there who have been practicing this for decades now, and they're just rock stars at it. And then it has led to all these other really innovative and creative new ways of improving ecosystems with this holistic perspective. So, um, so call of the Reed warbler kind of chronicles all the different folks who are doing cool stuff and does it in this very poetic, um, and beautiful way that, you know, is very engaging to read. Um, and it's a book that just came out this year. So, um, I would encourage everyone to read that one. Very cool. And where can people find you? Um, you can find me on all the socials, um, Bobby Gill. Uh, so on Instagram, it's Bobby Gill, but with a zero instead of an O because it was taken. So it's not that I'm trying to be cool. It's just that that's all that was available. <laughs> Bobby.Gill. Um, and Facebook and Twitter and everything else. Um, yeah, I'm all over. Cool. And, and Savory Institute, you yeah. can, yeah, Savory Institute, you can find us at uh, the website. It's savory.global. Um, it's one of those weird URLs, savory.global. And we are on Instagram, Savory Institute, uh, Facebook, Savory Institute, YouTube, Savory Institute, you know, all over everything. Amazing. Thank you so much, Bobby. This was such a cool conversation. I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. This has been really fun. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to, you know, to, to get this out to more folks and I hope it at least resonates with with one person. If so, then it's totally worthwhile. Totally. Agreed. Hello again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As a reminder, if you would like to support the show and get access to all sorts of perks, be connected with cool people and help me meet more people in person and share all of that with you, please visit patreon.com slash Anya Cates. Just sign up for uh, as low as a monthly donation of $5 or more if you can afford it, and you will become an integral part of this entire journey and project and goal. Um, I am going to play you out with a song today called Every Age by Jose Gonzalez, which is almost so applicable to the conversation and the intro I recorded that it's almost a bit cheesy and cliche, but we're going to go with it. Um, it's funny when I've 
tried to figure out what songs to play in accordance with these episodes, I always want to make them topical. And sometimes it's quite clear, like, I just happened to discover a song that week that works with the episode that I'm recording, and sometimes I can't figure it out. Um, And I've been doing this thing recently where I've just been going on Spotify and clicking shuffle on all of my songs, like with the intention of like, what song can I play on this show? Kind of like a tarot card, like really setting an intention for my Spotify shuffle. Anyway, I did that with this and this was the first song that came up and it was so fucking perfect. Um, So, you know, if you don't have a deck of tarot cards, you can always just play Spotify tarot. It works just as well. Um, so enjoy this song. Um, again, next episode will likely be released from Bali. Um, if you guys have any suggestions of cool shit for me to do in Bali, people I should meet, anything like that, if you're going to be in Bali, hit me up, send me an email, Anya at AnyaKates.com. Send me a message on Instagram at Anya.Kates. And yeah, talk to you guys next time. Every age has its turn Every branch of the tree has to learn Learn to grow, find its way Make the best of this shortest day Take this seed Take this dream of a better day Take your time, build a home Build a place where we all can belong Close.